Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this week on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we have another invention-themed episode for everyone. And I, I think it should prove an interesting episode because it's one of those stories that uh, more than it just covers like the need for an invention and the development of that invention, uh, it also gets into the acceptance of that invention or the, the lack thereof uh, concerning a new technology. You know, it's one thing to to have an idea for a new um, product or you know, a new invention, a new way of doing things, but then if it's going to make a difference, it also has to be accepted by the vast majority of the people in a, within a given field, uh, a given culture, etc. Yes, and also the way that uh, a certain invention has to prove its advantages over other solutions to the same problems, uh, which is a major uh, issue with the uh, early adoption of the technology we're going to be talking about today. Uh, something that is now a universal standard that people would be horrified to, to hear anybody was not using was in fact originally one solution among many. Right. We're going to be talking about surgical gloves, which like you say are just ubiquitous now. It's just, it, it, no matter what the surgical procedure happens to be, but not only surgical procedures, but also just any kind of medical um, uh, checkup, uh, anything in the medical establishment in general. If you go to the dentist, if you, uh, they're going to have uh, medical gloves on. And 
uh, it's one of those things where not only do you come to expect it, like you could not ask for it to be another way. You can't go to the dentist and be like, hey, doc, I'm thinking maybe you go gloves off this time on me. No, it's just the, the gloves are part of the procedure. And uh, most of us would be somewhat concerned if we go in there and the gloves are off. Or if the gloves were, say, made of cotton and really juicy. Right. <laughs> or, or, yeah, you go in and it's, it's like your dentist is wearing uh, big ski gloves <laughs> or mittens. Yeah. Uh, so you realize something is off. This is not the way things should be. But it was not always so. So if you went into, say, a German-speaking hospital in the 1890s, you may be lucky enough to, uh, to get operated on by a surgeon who has accepted the the uh, the new science of bacteriology who does understand that wounds need to be clean they need to be aseptic uh and does understand that gloves can help with that process but has not found a way to commit yet to impermeable gloves so may well have some cotton gloves on while they've got their fingers around in you <laughs> now a quick side note on just gloves in general gloves have been with us for a very long time it's just a basic way to protect the hand from wear from cold from heat from other threats uh just a, a basic technological advancement in which we realized hey we can take other materials and make a second skin for our hands our our very important but also um susceptible to damage hands uh, and uh some of the oldest gloves that we uh, have that have survived include a pair of delicate linen child's gloves from the tomb of Tutankhamun so those are about uh, 3200 years old and these were likely riding gloves but of course one of the things about gloves one one of the things about making yourself a second organic skin is that those tend not to survive uh, the, um, you know unless they are stuck away in a tomb uh, or in some other fashion well preserved for a very long period of time but the reality is when it comes to to surgery for most of human history surgical procedures of varying degrees of complexity were carried out barehanded. Uh, now, when we say barehanded surgery, we do have to note that we're not talking about pseudoscientific medical fraud, uh, psychic surgery, um, which is also, you know, quote unquote, performed barehanded. No, we're talking about actual surgical procedures of different uh, different scales performed without, without any sort of protective barrier between the surgeon's skin and the patient's flesh. So surgery of different sorts, you know, was practiced in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, ancient China, ancient India, and other parts of the ancient world. Ancient surgeries ran the gamut from you know, setting of bones to amputations, trepanations, bloodlettings, and everything in between. Uh, but as we've discussed on the show before, one of the big obvious realities here, obvious to us now anyway, by virtue of germ theory, is that human hands carry disease. And even regularly cleaned hands can be a problem. I was looking at some of the stats on this in Review of Human Hand Microbiome Research by Edmonds Wilson et al. in a 2015 edition of uh, Journal of Dermatological Science. The authors here point out that hands are, of course, a critical component of the human microbiome and are, quote, a conduit for exchanging microorganisms between the environment and the body. 
So not all of these are dangerous naturally, but hands can harbor pathogenic species like staph and E. coli, and this is even more the case in high-risk environments, such as among those who handle food or provide health care. And the authors here point to various studies that have also looked into how an enhanced use of hand hygiene products may negatively impact the hand microbiome as well, resulting in greater pathogen carriage, for example. But other studies have demonstrated, quote, reduced pathogen carriage and or infections with use of these products. Oh, yeah, that's got to be an interesting double-edged sword. So, like, now that we have, you know, germ theory, we know it's important to wash your hands if you're going to be uh, eating or preparing food or or certainly if you're going to be doing any kind of medical procedure, but also that repeatedly washing or you're sterilizing your hands has effects beyond just keeping pathogens away. It also affects the uh, the presence of non-harmful microbiota on the surface of your hands. Yeah, it's kind of like, I guess, you, again, you have to think of your hands as, um, as part of your body. They're not mm-hmm. just tools. They're not instruments that are used by you and your body. They, they are part of you. Uh, they are also, like yourself, multitude. They have, uh, they have populations. And if you regularly carpet bomb the population, that's going to disrupt. That's not going to just keep things from living there. It's going to potentially disrupt um, uh, the the ratio of what lives there, and uh, and so the the idea of, of of cleaning the hand completely that as we'll discuss that becomes kind of problematic at times. Like again, it's not an instrument. It is uh, as as pointed out by one of the authors. We're going to look to you cannot just boil the hand uh, to sterilize it and then use the hand uh, in a, in a completely hygienic way. Right. Though I want to be very clear, while we are acknowledging these consequences, this is not a case against hand washing. No, no, no. Hand washing, as we'll discuss, is also very important here. Um, I also have to throw in, while after I was researching a lot of this and had it on my mind, still sort of turning over in my my head, I ran into my boss uh, out in the world and my boss Mm. um, stuck his hand out, but luckily he went for the fist bump instead of the handshake. (laughs) That was great. That was, that was ideal. Uh, because uh, I didn't want to have to be like, sorry, uh, can't shake your hand right now. Just read a whole bunch of stuff about um, about hand germs. <laughs> I thought you were gonna. He stuck his hand out so you could kiss it. No, 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 no. We have <laughs> we we have a better. Our, our boss is a little better than that. Our boss is the Pope. We work at the <laughs> Vatican. But uh, another big thing about all this is that it comes down to the to, to one of the obvious facts we've discussed before, that without germ theory, without any insight into the invisible world of organisms that are literally at our fingertips, for the vast majority of human history, we just we just didn't know. We just didn't know that, like, we again, we had gloves. It's not like, uh, like we didn't have this idea that, well, there are some cases where we need to cover our hands to protect our hand from... Uh, some sort of external force or or perhaps in some cases protect uh, the the external world from our hands but if you cannot see the threat if you if you if you, you have no real concept of of the the germs that are out there of the invisible world then what can you do well yes and also to acknowledge that the glove itself would need to be sterilized in order to provide an advantage there like right. just putting on a dirty glove doesn't do much better than using a dirty hand exactly um to, to give some more stats on some of this, according to Smith et al. in 2017's Infection Control Through the Ages, even today, quote, approximately 1.7 million healthcare-associated infections, or HAIs, occur in the United States each year. So even with modern um, precautions and technologies in place, uh, that's one of the things about healthcare. I mean, it does 
put you in close proximity with a doctor. It puts you often puts you in a space uh, where you have other individuals with various healthcare concerns going on. Um, it's just the the reality of it. But if you go back in time before germ theory, before these various technologies, things obviously get a bit darker. Uh, Smith et al. point out that in medieval times, there was a high level of illness and death in hospitals. And quote, when a sick person entered a hospital, his or her property was disposed of. And in some regions, a requiem mass was held as if he or she had already died. That's a bad healthcare plan. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's not a a singing endorsement of the the hospital you're about to enter. Because, of course, the the tools were often primitive. They weren't cleaned. They weren't cleaned between uses. Uh, Cauterization via hot iron or boiling oil was commonly used. You're looking at between 60 and 80% mortality rates. This was pretty common during the time period. And even into the early modern period, many things had improved, but you still had surgeons placing ungloved hands directly into wounds and directly into incisions and so forth. And this was certainly the norm, again, for much of human medical history. We didn't have the materials and or we didn't know about the invisible world of microbes and other reasons were focused on for subsequent infections, such as bad air or miasma seeping into the wound. And uh, I read that, you know, until shockingly recently, it was things like pus and secondary infections were often just thought of as, well, this is just part of the body healing itself. This is just what happens. This is, this is the norm. And there's nothing we can do about it. I was just randomly reminded of something I read recently, which is, uh, so you, you know the famous story about uh, U.S. President James A. Garfield, who was, it is sometimes said assassinated, but it is it has been observed by many historians that uh, he was shot, but he survived his bullet wound for a while and was like for months actually, and was repeatedly uh, operated on in an unsanitary way by a doctor. And it is, it is commonly uh, believed that the, the doctor's unsanitary intervention is in fact, what killed Garfield. But uh, the thing that I found out is that that doctor's name his given name was Doctor. His name was Doctor Willard Bliss. So he was Doctor Doctor Willard Bliss. All right, but but speaking of this time period, yeah, eventually we get to what Smith et al. refer to as the Progressive Era of the 1890s through the 1920s, and we do see a shift here. Quote: This period saw great advances in hospital infection control. Ignaz Simmelweis was the first hospital epidemiologist, setting a precedent for step-by-step analysis of an outbreak and for tracing epidemics to a particular surgeon or practice, e.g. going from the autopsy room to the operating room without washing your hands. Ugh. He saw 11 of 12 consecutive women die of puerperal or childbed fever and subsequently required that all providers who attended the patients first wash their hands in a watery solution of chlorinated lime. The mortality rate then dropped dramatically from 18% to 2%. So Simmelweis here was a Hungarian physician who lived from 1818 through 1865. So he's a little bit before of this before this progressive era that Smith et al. are talking about. But this is a time when we see rapid changes in medical knowledge. Uh, we see the advent of technologies like the X-ray. This is a time period that uh, was covered, I think, in just 
excellently in Steven Soderbergh's television drama, The Nick, which I know I've, I've mentioned on the, the show before. It's uh, uh, just a great drama, a lot of attention to detail, but also they have this very like clean, white, almost blinding uh, visual style to the show. You have electronic uh, music by Cliff Martinez uh, th- throughout the series. And so I think it does a great job of, of portraying the past as the energetic, promising um, present, you know, uh, something that we sometimes, I think, lose track of in representing the past on film or even reading about the past, about thinking about this time period and past as being completely divorced from what we will know. And it's more about just like the excitement and also the danger of, of being there at the bleeding edge of technology and innovation. Yeah, I think one of the things that's that's often hard to capture accurately when you're portraying the past is understanding the past as without knowledge of the future, understanding the past as uh, incorporating the full uncertainty of being a present of its own, like you say. So mm-hmm. not only the excitement of things being new at the time, but also the lack of knowledge how things would turn out. Everything always seems more obvious in retrospect. Right, right. And uh, and certainly, the Nick is a show that doesn't doesn't shy away from the wrong paths. I think I've mentioned before when we we're talking about the invention of the X ray. You have there's one episode in particular where they're so excited to have the X ray uh, there at the hospital, and they're just is just com- com- using it just so irresponsibly uh, w- without really understanding or having any idea of just how dangerous repeated exposure uh, to the machine would be. Well, they're using it unnecessarily, right? They're just like right. using it for fun. Yeah, it's like hey, get the kids in here. Oh, <laughs> watch, 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 Dad um, uh, X-ray his hand multiple times for for no reason. That sort of thing. Uh, but uh, and, and they, you know, they explore other things as well on the show. You know, various uh, social issues come up, um, eugenics comes up. You know, all sorts of things of this nature. But um, but anyway, uh, uh, Simmelweis's findings. We're, we're apparently better received in some countries than uh, compared to others. Uh, the UK and Germany being two, though, that's interesting because we'll come back to, to Germany as sort of a, a center of discussion over the best practices and best use of new medical findings and technology. But on the whole, there was a lot of criticism of his ideas, and a lot of his efforts ended up in antagonism. His critics attacked him. He attacked back. Uh, it apparently got got pretty ugly, uh, from, you know, at least from an academic standpoint, and his mental health declined greatly, and he eventually died in an asylum. So it's often uh, characterized as being, you know, this this effort where he's he's kind of up against the wall. Maybe didn't uh, have uh, what maybe wasn't the ideal person to 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 be making these arguments. Like maybe it, it could have been a better PR campaign for some of these ideas. But what can you do? Well, yeah, I think a lot of the hygienic concerns about medical interventions and especially uh, uh, surgery would get more traction in the 1860s with Joseph Lister. Yeah, Joseph Lister, definitely a big one. I mean, there are various individuals that are working during this time, cracking our understanding of the unseen and what we should do about it. And of course, you have to acknowledge the work of Louis Pasteur. Uh, and others. But yeah, Joseph Lister was a big name, 1827 through 1912. He introduced the concept of surgical asepsis, the absence of all microorganisms within uh, any type of invasive procedure. Uh, his work uh, alone was associated, according to Smith et al., with a de- decrease in post-amputation mortality rates 
from 45% to 15%. And he also cut down on the necessity for amputation. That was one of the big things he, he was going after too. Like he was saying, uh, it, it just won't be necessary to amputate this, this many limbs because, uh, be, because we'll be using cleaner tools, etc. He argued for the necessity of pre-operative hand washing and the use of disinfectant-soaked wound dressings. Yeah, uh, I think Lister especially is known uh, to highlight a distinction we'll get to in a little bit, the distinction between asepsis and antisepsis with uh, pioneering the antisepsis trend, which is the attempt to sterilize the wound itself to prevent infection. Uh, So this would typically mean using a disinfectant chemical such as carbolic acid in and around a wound. Yeah, and also dressings, surgical tools. He stressed that you should change dressings on wounds. Um, regularly. Um, yeah, and again, before Lister here, pus and infection were just considered part of the healing process. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily thought that this means things are not going to, a, to pl- according to plan. It just means like this is, this is what happens when the body heals from a wound. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, so getting into more into the realm of, of early surgical gloves, early medical glove concepts, and, and the struggle for their acceptance. Um, William Halstead introduced rubber gloves for use in surgery by around 1890. And by, by 1900, we see more and more doctors wearing gowns, masks, and gloves, but the use of gloves especially is certainly not instantly accepted by the medical community. Uh, to come back to the Nick, for example, uh, which, which again, I think do, does a pretty great job of, of depicting this time period. Uh, if you go back and watch any of this show, uh, and, and I did, certainly didn't have a chance to go back and watch all of it, but you, you pretty much don't see surgical gloves at all. There are just lots of scenes of surgeons who, again, are at the, the bleeding edge of technology and innovation at the time, but they're reaching into people's bodies with bare hands. They are uh, opening up people's uh, craniums with bare hands uh, and just every other part of the anatomy as well. Lots of shots of uh, white linens and blood-soaked hands. Now, on the show, there are also frequent scenes of surgeons, though, going through a series of hand washings before surgery, uh, sometimes while engaging in dialogue with each other. But uh, I re remember being particularly taken by at least one scene in which there's kind of a beautiful feeling of almost spiritual ritual to the thing, of the, the, the surgeon washing and, and, uh, and, and lowering their, their hands and forearms first into one vat, then into a second vat, and then into a third vat. Like, again, it has kind of a almost magical feeling to it. And so I was reading a little bit about uh, about this time period here for this episode, and based on my readings of Why Were Surgical Gloves Not Used Earlier by Thomas Schlich, I believe this is the three-vat system standardized in Berlin in 1888 by Paul Furbringer. First soap, then alcohol, and then finally an antiseptic substance. Yeah, that three-stage process was very common by the 1890s. And again, it, it's 
it's great. It's a wonderful advancement in, uh, in, in, in surgery at the time. But of course, it falls just a little short of, of actually using gloves, of actually embracing uh, the standard that now, again, we just accept when we go into a medical facility. Uh, so it, this, this, uh, the three VAT systems coming out of Germany. Uh, Germany is also where we see a great deal of argument during this period about whether surgeons should have to wear surgical gloves at all. And uh, I think the first place that I was reading about this, this um, there was a, a JSTOR Daily article that came out from, uh, this was by Jess Romeo in July of 2020, when obviously a lot of this sort of thing was going, uh, going on in, their, uh, in our heads. And there's a lot of obvious parallels between uh, the, the treatment here of gloves and consideration of things like uh, certainly hand washing, but also uh, the use of masks. Um, the article was the surgeons who said no to gloves and the, the article from Romeo is citing a, another article, uh, a, a source article by Thomas Schlich, who we just referenced, titled uh, Negotiating Technologies in Surgery, the Controversy about Surgical Gloves in the 1890s. And this was a 2013 article from the Bulletin of the History of Medicine. Yeah, this Bulletin of History of Medicine article is is interesting. So the author here, Thomas Schlick, is a German-Canadian historian of medicine who's on faculty at McGill University uh, in Montreal. And Schlick begins his article with uh, by, by illustrating a really strange moment from the history of surgery where there was so so there was this big uh, conference in 1898. It was the 27th Congress of the German Society for Surgery, and Schlick quotes a report on this meeting by an Austrian surgeon named Alexander Frankel, who was just perplexed by some of what was going on because a big subject of conversation for one whole afternoon at this uh, at this conference for surgeons was about gloves. It was about surgical gloves, whether or not you should use them, and what types of gloves are best. And uh, Frankel, reacting to this this whole discussion, says, quote, For a whole afternoon, participants discussed about the best glove models, marching up all the various specimens made from different materials in all sizes and price ranges, a la Sarah Bernhardt, referring to like a French actress, uh, and whatever the fashionable designs might be called, a whole apparatus of pseudoscience was mobilized to inaugurate the new fashion <laughs> of the surgeon in gloves. Uh, so Frankel here is a respected, influential surgeon of the time. How can it be that he viewed the idea of surgical gloves as absolutely ridiculous pseudoscientific pageantry akin to like, uh, I think the comparison to Sarah Bernhardt here is he's saying it's like a gaudy fashion show. Yeah. Yeah. He compares it to just pure costuming. It's like, this is just a costume that these doctors are putting on. Uh, there's no real medical rationale for this. Now today it's natural for us to look back on this view as not only misguided, but absolutely baffling, but it's true that even after the idea of using some kind of impermeable sterile glove for surgery was introduced, it took more than a decade uh, of, of sort of debate within the medical community before it achieved what could be considered near universal acceptance. And this article by Schlick explores the historical discussion and controversy about the introduction of surgical gloves, specifically in German-speaking hospitals in the 1890s. Um, so the question is, why did most surgeons hesitate for so long before adopting the use of surgical gloves, 
even after we had a bacterial theory of disease and infection. Uh, and actually, once you see all their concerns laid out, the objections to people who resisted the, the gloves at the time seem a little bit less baffling. It actually makes more sense of them when you understand what the what the understanding was at the time and what the, the pressures on surgeons for performing in the operating room were. Yeah, I think this is one of the, the, the great things he does in the paper is really presents this this idea because it's easy to think about this and sort of look at the surface level of the, the this new technology and its eventual um, adoption and just look at it as uh, okay well here's the new way and everybody else must have been saying oh i just want to do it the old way uh, where it was really more a situation where there was the old ways and then there were all these new exciting ways uh, that were uh, you know all ultimately trying to to crack the same nut to try to improve um, the, the mortality rates for various procedures. And, and also, he, he seems to, to, to stress that, you know, it, it, we, should, we can't really go into these situations sort of with a wrong side of history viewpoint of the past. You know, uh, generally, in, in the present, if you're presented with different ideas, the ones that are the wrong side of history are not labeled. So <laughs> you, yeah. don't, you don't know that this is not going to, you know, that you're on the, ultimately on the losing hill here when you're advocating uh, that, uh, the, the, that medical gloves should not be used universally. Well, yeah, this is what I was talking about earlier with like the uncertainty of the present. Mm -hmm. And you always have to remember that in the past, they were just as uncertain about what the future would be as we are about our own future in the present. Right. And one thing he stresses here is that these surgeons, uh, often big name surgeons that were engaging in this debate, a lot of them had their own ideas, their own techniques. And in many cases, they had they had data to back up what they were arguing. Um, like there's there's one guy that he, he mentioned, Surgeon Thomas Spencer Wells, who advocated the cleanliness in cold water school as opposed to in, uh, embracing Lister's ideas. So this is more in general about like you know, hand washing and um, cleansing of instruments, boiling of instruments, et cetera, as opposed to gloves. But this was a guy that uh, that still had min had a minimal complication rate. Uh, and the, therefore, he had some data to back up his viewpoint. Uh, so he had—he wasn't just standing on a hill without you know any reason uh, to, to make his argument. He had seen what seemed at the time like a reasonable argument, like saying, "Look, look, I, what I'm doing seems to be working, and I have the data to back it up." Uh, yes, and Wells would not be the only one. There are even people making the case at this 1898 uh, uh, Congress of German uh, Society for Surgery who were saying, look, I've done laboratory research that shows that you get way more bacterial penetration of these uh, uh, blood-soaked cotton gloves than you do of, uh, of bare hands. So, so actually, you don't need gloves, you just need clean hands. Yeah, another name he mentions is Johannes Mikulich, who um, who uh, who argue that uh, we should be using this preoperative injection of nucleic acid to supposedly increase white blood cell count and boost immune response. So, so again, it comes back to the idea that it's not just the old ideas and the new. Uh, this one new idea. No, there, there are these other seemingly promising new ideas and new technologies that are also suddenly available. Oh, that's interesting. And you, and you get these from both sides about the different solutions, because Mikulich here was one of the major proponents of gloves at this at this conference. He was there representing the yes, gloves are good side. <laughs> 
Interesting, yeah, but 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 and then he also has this other thing as well that uh, that mm-hmm. you could conceivably you're a surgeon, you're listening to all these ideas, you can imagine where you might be like, well, this uh, Johannes seems to have a great technology here. Maybe I can cherry pick a little bit. Maybe I can sort of hold on to my own reservations about gloves and just uh, start using this nucleic acid treatment um, uh, uh, that has been proposed. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of ideas on the table, and again. It seems like each surgeon had their own ideas and techniques. Yeah, that's another point Schlick actually really highlights in this paper, uh, which is that, you know, sometimes we have an erroneous uh, tendency to erroneously look at the history of progress in medicine as a kind of uh, unified top down effort where there's just like, okay, here, you know, it, almost like there is a sort of uh, a board of medicine that like controls all of medicine throughout history and they direct the flow of, of development and progress. But in fact, the way uh, Schlick frames it is, you know, medicine is just full of individual little practical solutions to problems, especially in the 1890s here. And over time, some prove better than others. Now, another thing we have to mention here is, of course, what we're talking about when it comes to materials and what we were talking, what we're talking about with the physical gloves of the time. Um, This would not have been a situation where like we're, we're dealing with modern medical gloves that are suddenly presented to an audience um, uh, uh, at this, uh, this gathering. Um, it made me think of a, a recent episode of the 90s Outer Limits that I watched. It, the episode is titled Gettysburg. It stars Meatloaf, and it also <laughs> has the guy who played the crazy man on the boat in Jason Takes Manhattan. And it does involve time travel wow. with Civil War reenactors who are sent back in time to the Battle of Gettysburg, and one of them is a, like a medical responder and has a med kit. And so there's a great scene where he's 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 doing some um, uh, some, some medical intervention on a wounded soldier, and Meatloaf's character, who's a Civil War era. Um, Oh, I forget what he is. If he's a oh, he's a colonel. Uh, he's watching on, and he doesn't seem to think anything about these modern medical um, uh, devices and gloves that are being used by this guy. So um, that's kind of a tangent, but I, uh, it was it was it was weighing heavily on my mind as I researched this. Well, to be fair to Meatloaf, I mean, if I look at a modern surgery, I'd, I'd see a lot of stuff. I I don't know what I'm looking at, and it's I, there's no time travel involved. Yeah, so so these would not have been modern medical gloves that they were considering here. Um, uh, the author mentions uh, several of the different uh, designs that were presented uh, at this conference. They included elbow-length fabric gloves of cotton or silk. And of course, if you were to use these during an operation, they would apparently quickly become soaked with blood. Uh, there was also uh, the idea of using leather-style military gloves, uh, and these would, of course, been clumsy to use. Wax-treated fabric was another idea, and ooh, I was really this one really captured my uh, attention. The idea of wax poured directly over the surgeon's hands to form a, a supposed seal between uh, the flesh and the operation. Yeah, in the actual paper, Schlick talks, he mentions this as a proposal, but I didn't get the impression anybody ever did it, or at least not, yeah, <laughs> didn't like put it into regular practice. Yeah, I have trouble imagining how it would work, right? Because if the wax was sealed around the hand, um, and you know, if you were to go with the, the right wax, it of course wouldn't be just absolutely um, scalding uh, to the, the flesh, you, then it would surely become brittle upon trying to move your hand around. Yeah, I don't know. It, it 
it doesn't make a lot of sense to me though. I'm also confused about the, the wax treated. I mean, uh, I, I can get into more detail about this later, but the, the, one of the proposals is for like a silk glove that you would cover in liquid wax. And that would help make the silk fabric more impermeable. Uh, but I would also think like, wouldn't that get kind of brittle? I, I don't know. Yeah. It seems like it would be flaking off and you'd have like little bits of wax, I mean, you know, fortunately, as, as we've, we've pointed out before in the show, like wax has long been used, uh, uh, and, and, and so has honey in various uh, medical treatments. So it's not the worst thing, I guess, to have in a wound, but it's it, you, you want to cut down on the amount of um, external substances that are introduced to a, a body cavity during a procedure like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about you, but another detail I really liked in uh, Schlich's uh, article uh, was this bit... Um, Quote, another strategy, and this is a, an alternative to gloves, involve keeping one's hands clean between operations and abstaining from handling infectious materials, even when not on the job, an approach that in some cases amounted to a whole regime of living, which th- this is easy to sort of think of almost comedically, where you can imagine the surgeon saying, well, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm not going to wear gloves during a procedure. It, it gets in the way. I have some, some issues with, the, with how hygienic it is. What I'm going to do is I'm going to wear gloves the rest of the time when I'm not in the surgery and therefore keep my hands nice and clean and ready to just get in there. Uh, there you almost it's like you become sort of part of a, a priestly class. You must maintain purity for all time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's like these are the money makers, right? I have to keep the gloves on them at all times. These hands are registered with the FBI as lethal weapons because I don't wash them before I operate. <laughs> now, uh, he, he points out that the, the material challenges here uh, came down uh, to the following. And these, I think, were pointed out by Surgeon Anton Wolfer at the time. They needed to be impermeable, uh, obviously. They needed to be flexible. They needed to be resistant to tears. They couldn't be too tight. They couldn't be too hot. And above all else, they had to be, uh, you had to be able to, to sterilize them. They had to be sterilizable. Right. Meaning you could like uh, boil them or steam them or something to, to kill anything that might be on them without damaging them so that they couldn't be used. Right. And so given all of these demands of the materials, uh, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the first surgical gloves that were presented here, they were not perfect. They did tear. Uh, They did make aspects of surgery, particularly gripping certain tools or certain parts of the human anatomy more difficult. I think the manipulation of bowels is uh, singled out as being difficult with some of the gloves of this time period. Um, But on, on the other hand, it does certainly in the long term, they did make a difference in the spread of pathogens through surgical procedure. Oh yeah, I th- so I think by around the time of World War One, it's generally agreed that that's when you you are seeing okay now, now we have pretty much universal acceptance that impermeable sterile gloves are good for for surgery and they should be used if at all possible. I can't help but think of of media in all this as well, like cinematic depictions of doctors. Uh, like now, like the, the image of a doctor, be of them a, you know, a good doctor or a mad scientist or something, the taking off or the putting on of surgical gloves or medical gloves of some point, some form or another, it is kind of um, associated with, with power and ability. Uh, you know, there's, um, there's something about it that uh, like we don't even, even doubt, doubt, not only do we not doubt the importance of gloves, but they have kind of become associated with these roles. Like it's hard to separate the two and you wouldn't want to separate the two. 
there's a there's a strong audiovisual cue used in media, which is uh, much in the same way you have like a an action movie where a gritty action scene is about to commence, so you get the pump of the shotgun. Mm-hmm. In the medical scene, you get the snap of the rubber glove. It's almost exactly the same thing. Right. I mean, it's enough to where. If you were given the choice between two fraudulent pseudoscientific uh, healers and they were going to work on you and one is using bare hands and one is using gloves, like the mere presence of the gloves could potentially legitimize it a little bit in your eyes, you know? Wait, no, but did you mean bare hands or B-E-A-R hands? Oh, well, I meant I meant B-A-R-E, but B-E-A-R, that brings on a, an entirely different uh, vision, right? I mean, that's then you're in the realm of the shaman. I would go with I would go with the quack that had bare paws over the quack <laughs> that just had gloves. Or well, what if the the what if the quack had both a bare head uh, on over their own head, but they had medical gloves on? What if they operated on you wearing the bare costume from Jack Frost? There you go. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. All right, well, I wanted to come back to that uh, Thomas Schlick paper in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine, the one uh, called Negotiating Technologies in Surgery, that was all about the controversy over surgical gloves in German-speaking hospitals in the 1890s. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the Schlick paper is interesting because it frames the uh, the good things about gloves as a sort of, you know, existing within a network of trade-offs. Uh, and uh, talking about it as one of the types of what Schlick calls control strategies within surgery at the time. And control strategies, there were many, but they they, inv- they included things like different instruments, uh, uh, lights and operating tables, uh, anatomy atlases, anesthetics, and of course, technologies of asepsis. Now, I, I mentioned earlier the, the difference between asepsis and antisepsis, and this is an uh, important concept in in the development of surgery in the second half of the 19th century. So you've got two schools of thought that that are in competition. One is antisepsis, which is the idea of disinfecting a wound after germs have likely been introduced. And then you've got asepsis, which is instead trying to prevent any germs from ever entering the wound in the first place. Uh, And the primary method here would be trying to make all instruments and objects in the surgical environment sterile before surgery begins. So you would boil your scalpels and so forth. But Schlick describes a growing nervousness among surgeons in the 1890s based on the general feeling that reigning aseptic practices were not good enough. Uh, You know, by the 1890s, surgeons in German-speaking hospitals were aware of of the bacteriological problems. They were trying to be aseptic however they could. They were washing their hands and and going through all these procedures we talked about. But they were just uh, aware that that the current methods were not preventing all infection. Asepsis had to be what they were, uh, what they thought of as an all or nothing campaign. And Schlick uh, quotes an academic surgeon, uh, somebody who we've already referenced. This was a guy at the university of Breslau named Johannes van Mikulich. And Mikulich wrote, quote, the smallest mistake in wound treatment would come back to haunt the surgeon. And Mikulich together with a collaborator named Carl Fluga who lived 1847 to 1923, uh, spent great effort in the 1890s trying to close the gaps, basically to find ways that germs could still be getting in, even with the aseptic practices of the time. Uh, And so one of the ideas they came up with was using face masks to prevent droplet infection. So droplets from the doctor's mouth or nose entering the wound and introducing germs during surgery. 
and Schlick writes, quote, many of today's surgical paraphernalia were introduced at the time as part of the bacteriologically supported search for weak points in the aseptic all or nothing system of preventing wound infection. It was the it was the context of this crisis of aseptic surgery that prompted a number of surgeons in the 1890s to simultaneously try out surgical gloves within their local settings. Now, one of the next things that Schlick talks about in this paper I thought was very interesting is so if we're looking at German-speaking hospitals in the 1880s and 1890s, they're aware of the fact that they need to improve aseptic practices in surgery, but they don't know all the ways to plug the holes. And the use of surgical gloves is obvious to us in retrospect, but it was not obvious to everyone at this time and place. So why would it not have been obvious to them? Uh, One thing Schlick points out is that, first of all, it just requires thinking about gloves in a different way. Prior to this, gloves were typically used to protect the person wearing them rather than to protect someone from the person wearing them. So it's kind of like having to just think outside the box to reframe something that is already part of your mundane existence. So imagine thinking that you would need to wear a hat to protect someone else from your head. It seems weird, but actually, if you think about it in the right context, this is something that people do. I've, I've worked in restaurants where chefs were required to wear either hats or hairnets to keep their hair out of the food. If you're not familiar with a context like that, it might never occur to you that you would wear a hat for somebody else's benefit. Mm. Uh, but another thing that, that Schlick points out uh, around here is uh, that carbolic acid and other antiseptic chemicals that were used to, to get the hands clean before surgery... These were hard on the skin. Uh, Schlick writes, quote, copiously applied, the caustic solutions often cause severe skin damage in surgeons and nurses, forcing some of them to abandon operating altogether. The issue was the background of the well-known story of how in 1889, William Halstead at Johns Hopkins introduced rubber gloves to protect the hands of his chief operating nurse, who later became his wife. Now, Rob, you already mentioned Halstead introducing rubber gloves in his practice uh, around this time, but uh, Schlick goes on with an interesting detail here. Quote, subsequently, such gloves were also used by Halstead's assistants. They put them on when taking instruments out of the corrosive sublimate solution in which the instruments were kept and passed them on to the operating surgeon who did not wear gloves. <laughs> so, so the assistants would, you'd have like a scalpel and that would be in a sterilizing uh, caustic chemical. And the assistants would put gloves on to take the thing out of that chemical, hand it to the surgeon who would receive it with an ungloved hand and then operate. Yeah, I, I guess the, one of the things to drive home here is yeah, the adoption of a new technology is sometimes a little patchy. And the reasoning can be different than what you'd expect. So they've got, by 1889, Halstead's uh, assistants and nurses are using rubber gloves to protect their hands from these caustic chemicals. But it wasn't until uh, 1896 that that rubber gloves to protect the patient during surgery became standard at Johns Hopkins. It just didn't seem like an obvious solution until around then. Now, another thing is that, so Rob, earlier you mentioned this three vat process. You've got surgeons who would wash their hands with soap and then submerge their hands in alcohol and then dip their hands in an antiseptic chemical uh, before going into surgery. So you would think, man, you go through that kind of procedure, that really should kill all the bacteria, right? Shouldn't your hands be perfectly clean by then? But one of the things that became clear to these these uh, surgeons in the 1890s is that this actually 
it was pretty good, but it wasn't good enough because even if you could sterilize the outside skin of your hands, there were little pockets where germs could camp out and still infect a wound. Examples would include the sebaceous glands. These are uh, little little gland pockets attached to hair follicles that produce sebum, which is a waxy or oily substance that coats the skin and hair. And then also you've got like underneath the fingernails, you know, you're just going to have like little recesses back there where these liquids are not getting in deep enough and germs from in there might still get out during surgery. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this reminds me of, you remember in our invention episode on the death ray, the, uh, the idea of this time between world war one and two, where there was terror about the inadequacy of ground-based defenses against air raids. And there's this, this phrase that uh, was used at the time, the bomber always gets through. I compared that to the bacterium in this case, right? There's this fear that the bacterium somehow always gets through. Right, right. And there's always going to be at least one little crack in the defenses with this method. So to try to get around these problems where, you know, sterilizing your hands is not good enough, this is where gloves come in. And uh, so we mentioned several times this guy, Johannes von uh, Mikulic, uh, he, he tried this interesting solution beginning with an operation on Easter 1896, which was sterilized cotton gloves. So hands would go through the regular gauntlet, washing and disinfection. But then after this, you would put on these sterilized cotton gloves. They were very big. They had sleeves or gauntlets going all the way up the arm to like the elbow or past the elbow. And you can see pictures of these. They, they kind of look like mummy arms. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, they're cotton gloves, so they're not impermeable. So over the course of an operation, they would become soaked with blood and you might need to change them out for a new pair. But Mikulich was was very positive about them. He is like, you know, uh, they're not that bad. And sometimes with cotton gloves, you can even grip some things better. Like holding on to tissues is easier with cotton gloves than with the naked hand. Hmm. But there were times when the cotton gloves reportedly caused problems. Uh, one example would be, uh, this, this is the example given by, by Mikulich, when um, when a surgeon is feeling around on the inside of the stomach lining to locate a tumor by touch, the cotton would apparently dull the sensitivity of the fingers. And Mikulich uh, wrote that in cases like this, you could briefly take off the glove, reach around and, and feel for the tumor with your bare fingers as quickly as possible. And then once you found it, you put on a pair of fresh cotton gloves. Yeah, I mean, it's the five second rule of rooting around in somebody's <laughs> uh, uh, stomach cavity, right? Yeah, that that seems like not not a great solution, but uh, but at least you're you're trying to use something. So uh, Mikulich also tried out early rubber gloves, but said they were not tenable because they had they just had major disadvantages for manual dexterity, and they weren't much better than cotton gloves for asepsis. I don't know about that last claim, but. Mm. Uh, apparently, uh, according to Schlick, at least the surgeon most responsible for bringing rubber gloves into vogue in German speaking hospitals was Werner Zoga von uh, Mantufel, who lived 1857 to 1926. Zoga was especially in search of failsafe aseptic protocols because he worked in an environment of a municipal hospital where he had to, quote, operate promiscuously. So he couldn't, like, specialize in one type of surgery and quarantine for that. Instead, he had to operate alternately on, like, infected patients and uninfected ones, sometimes handling uh, pus or feces or whatever, and then immediately having to go operate on a different patient. So his solution to this was boiled rubber gloves. 
there were downsides. The rubber gloves were uncomfortable. Sometimes they made it hard to uh, move or bend the thumb. Sometimes the fingers were too long, which made gripping difficult. And uh, because of these conditions, operations with rubber gloves would often take longer than the same operation with bare hands. And then to read from Schlick, quote, but this, Zoga thought, was outweighed by the gains in aseptic control, the absolute safety of the, quote, boiled hand, <laughs> as he called it. Zoga thus explicitly weighed the two kinds of control against each other. What also becomes clear in this discussion is the importance of the technical details of the gloves for reconciling manual and aseptic control. They had to be made in a way so that they didn't compromise the surgeon's grasp too much, but at the same time were effective in keeping bacteria out. So this is a way of trying to get the boiled hand into circulation. You've got to make it so that it's worth it to the surgeon that they can still do what they need to do. If you've got a, a, a rubber glove that is boiled and is aseptic, it's not going to get bacteria in there, but you can't really operate effectively with it. That doesn't do you any good. I, I do love the name, the boiled hand, by the way, we were talking about this a little bit before we came in here. Just perfect. This seems to be a bigger thing than just Zoga here. There's like a general anguish at the time expressed by multiple surgeons about the idea of hands being a non-boilable objects. Boiling, I think, became a kind of metonym for aseptic safety. Hmm. So you might at the time, instead of saying something is aseptic, you might just call it boiled, whether or not it had literally been boiled. Uh, now, a couple of other interesting solutions mentioned in the Schlick paper. There was a guy named uh, George Perthes, who lived 1868 to 1927. He was a surgeon in uh, Leipzig who said that full rubber gloves were too thick and difficult to work with, but suggested that surgeons could use, quote, fine finger covers made out of condom rubber. Uh, quote, which have been put on the market recently and which impair the touch of the finger relatively little. And that's kind of surprising, but yes, rubber condoms had existed in some form going back to at least the mid 19th century, uh, 1850s rubber condoms were allegedly made of rather thick material, but they did exist at the time. And Perthes suggested that, that, yeah, the, this condom rubber could actually be useful to the surgeon for having a good compromise between, uh, be, being impermeable and being aseptic, but also allowing the surgeon to feel what they are doing. But Perthes himself favored silk gloves, which uh, you already mentioned. He said, you know, they're great for manual control. Silk feels like you're wearing nothing at all. But, of course, they didn't have the aseptic advantages of impermeable rubber. Uh, there are a couple of other things that uh, Schlick mentions involving the idea of thin gloves coated in wax and, and whether or not that would be useful. Uh, leather gloves that maybe were topped with, with condom rubber or something. Uh, but yeah, ultimately we get to this desire that Wolfer articulates that you mentioned earlier, that you, you got to have a surgical glove that has all of the following characteristics. It's impermeable, it's flexible, tear resistant, not too tight, not too hot, and it can be sterilized. And this is what they ended up debating at the Surgical Congress in, in 1898. And there were all kinds of interesting debates here about like the actual bacteriological evidence for gloves, like... Uh, there were some people at this uh, meeting who dissented, arguing on the basis of experiments that gloves were not actually useful. And there was one experiment that involved testing cotton gloves. Uh, so again, not, not the rubber ones, but uh, taking uh, cotton gloves that had been used in surgery and then squeezing out the, quote, glove juice 
and then uh, doing a culture of that to see what its germ content was. And they were like, look, this glove juice is full of germs. These gloves can't be useful. Uh, in fact, they're picking up, because they get soaked with blood, they're picking up germs from the air, and they're introducing new germs. Uh, and then this led to a, really, I think, a, a debate between different uh, evidential standards. So you have some people saying, well, look, we've done these lab experiments saying that, you know, the glove juice is full of, of bacteria and that's no good. But then there are these other people saying, well, yeah, but we've used gloves in actual surgeries and we see the differences in outcomes and the outcomes are better when you use gloves. And so they were comparing different standards of like, how should we measure whether this this is effective or not? Now, eventually, over time, there was agreement that that impermeable gloves were the gold standard and that if you could manufacture them in a way that didn't sacrifice too much manual control, which, of course, we did get with the uh, with the the sterile gloves that people use today made of uh, thin materials such as uh, latex, nitrile or vinyl. Yeah. uh, Modern medical gloves come in, of course, various sizes and are made from a variety of polymers. You got powdered and unpowdered or even powdered with cornstarch to cut down on skin irritation. There have been a a lot of efforts toward the elimination of powdered gloves in general. And there are alternatives for individuals with with latex allergies. So, uh, yeah, modern medical gloves, there's a broad spectrum there. We've come a long way, obviously, since since these these first prototypes were being uh, unveiled. And, yeah, we're we're in 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 a totally different age now when it comes to just the acceptance of of uh, medical and surgical gloves you again you would not accept uh bare fingers and bare hands as an alternative but i think it's also good to understand that at the time resistance to the uh, to the take up of of gloves uh, especially impermeable gloves was not just uh, just stubbornness or quackery. There probably was some of that, but a lot of it was also genuine concern for being able to operate effectively. Yeah, I mean, when you're, you're I think the uh, the example of our promiscuous surgeon uh, is key here, though. Yeah, because he's talking like clearly he's weighing. Um, yeah, these are these are bulkier in some cases, but like I need to be able to go from this patient to this patient to this patient. Um, you know, I need to be able. It's, it's kind of like getting into the scale issue of inventions. Like, okay, I can. It's one thing to create a perfect prototype in isolation. It's one thing to be able to conduct one surgery in perfect isolation, but if that's just one of many surgeries you're performing uh, during a set amount of time, well, then you're in a slightly different scenario. There are all these other factors you have to take into account. Totally, yeah. Oh, and then to to come back to our outer limits example from earlier, the idea of being able to uh, perform medical interventions like out in the field, uh, like this seems another area where gloves are vital because uh, yes, I mean you still are going to ideally uh, you know have some um, some sort of cleansing uh, materials, but are you going to have three vats uh, in which to, um, to to spend some time uh, washing your hands, or are you going to have to essentially snap on some gloves and get in there and try and save someone's life? That sort of thing. Yeah. So anyway, it's a yeah fascinating topic. I think especially when you get into the uh, adoption of a new technology, uh, how we look back on it, and how you know these the, the efforts of the historian to place us within that time period to make sense of it all. Uh, just uh, just all very fascinating, and I think something to keep in mind and to think about the next time. You're in a medical facility, you're in a checkup of one sort or another, and uh, you, you see your doctor, or you don't see them snap on those gloves. The, the, the gloves are just part of it. 
Uh, I, of course, we'd love to hear from anyone out there who regularly wears medical gloves, surgical gloves as part of your profession. What, you know, what are your thoughts on them? Uh, what, what sort of a history do you have with them? Do you have to use a certain variety of glove due to allergies or skin irritations? Uh, we'd love to, to, to hear uh, some insight from the field. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close out this uh, invention-themed episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But uh, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Just a reminder that uh, new episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, and, uh, oh, we should also mention, we, we mentioned condoms briefly. We do have an older episode of Invention, about the invention of the condom. So uh, uh, we recommend that. And of course, we've touched on medical history topics uh, numerous times over the years. And you can find those in the archives. On Mondays, we do listener mail episodes. On Wednesdays, we do uh, short form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking and all-day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long save now at cedarpoint.com